Good evening and welcome. You're listening to Corbett Report Radio, broadcasting live from the Tragedy and Hope Studios here in Connecticut. It's midnight on this spring Friday evening here on the East Coast. Thank you for tuning in to RVN. I'm your host, Richard Grove, sitting in for James, who will be back on Monday. And we really appreciate this opportunity to once again engage in some healthy inquiry. This is a continuation of last Friday's episode, and if you missed part one or part two, you can find the outline, notes, and references on tragedyandhope.com. Tonight, I'm once again assisted in studio by Tony Myers, and on the line, we've got Brett Bonat of the School Sucks podcast once again. Welcome, Brett. We're excited to speak with you again. How are you tonight? I'm doing good. It's good to be back with you guys. Well, for the audience that's just tuning in tonight and might not have heard the past two shows, how would you summarize what we covered last Friday and uh, for the benefit of those just tuning in? We've been busy. And uh, what we got into last week was uh, the very influential uh, German idealist philosopher, Jörg Hegel. And I think we set out to humanize him. He's somebody who is often um, cast in a very, very negative light because possibly, you know, as philosophers, the results of their philosophies, because their methodologies are not really sound, um, they often have negative results. Uh, if a century goes by, sometimes it doesn't take that long. And Hegel, uh, along with Immanuel Kant, another German idealist, is certainly one of those figures. So uh, we were trying to look a little bit more at his intentions. And he wasn't setting out with uh, the Hegelian dialectic. We also identified that that uh, terminology came from another philosophy entirely, but he was not setting out to uh, create an owner's manual for human civilization for the ruling elites. Well, let's continue delving into this deceptive history subsequent to the work of Jörg Hegel. And this week I'd like to compare and contrast the philosophy of finding truth in the world versus sophism, uh, you know, just defending whatever's convenient for you, for whatever reason, be it money or uh, political or other reasons. So we're really comparing signal to noise, if you will. Where sure. would you think the appropriate place uh, for this topic to begin? Signal to noise. Well, you know, I think that the study of philosophy, you know, the discipline of philosophy was revived in the 20th century with uh, objectivism. I think that uh, Rand was the first person who uh, really articulated how, um, let's see, reason and um, what's the word that's escaping me right now? Well, there's logic and reason and objectivism, and then I would compare that to sophism or solipsism or nihilism or any of the things that are subjective-based, that are, uh, you know, they're not object-based, they're subject-based in the mind, and there's no tangible relationship to reality or what exists. And after so, the first break, when we come back, uh, it's, it's not quite time yet, but we'll be defining existence tonight, we'll be getting into this in a, in a heavy comparison and contrast. So when I, when I stumped Brett with signal to noise, really what I'm talking about is learning how to identify that which exists, that which is factual and actual, evidentiary, and uh, for which exist artifacts, versus the noise, the things that are there to trick us and deceive us and to give away our power and to uh, let others uh, control us. And a lot of that noise is a lot of you know these different philosophies such as existentialism, nihilism, and uh, Hegelianism were developed, you know, the young Hegelians, red Hegelians, all these different, the pragmatists, these late 19th century philosophies, which were really subjective-based. They sound complex, but we can break it down very simply 
for the audience and just break it down from this object of, you know, an object from a subject which is held in your mind and, you know, go from there and help to break out some definitions and show how the objective school in the 20th century was able to revive really Aristotle's uh, uh, works in, uh, on logic and bring it to a 20th century sort of, uh, in, into a 20th century language. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. We were comparing and contrasting sophism and philosophy, the noise to the signal. The signal being that which exists, philosophy, is the process of finding the truth about what exists. This sophism, this uh, this subjectivism that we were talking about, this is uh, what's coming forward from Jörg Egel, from Immanuel Kant, from uh, Pestalozzi, from Fichte. I got a little improvement on my Fichte in, uh, pronunciation last week. So I'm going to start out by defining this concept of nihilism. This is one of these philosophical doctrines suggesting the negation of one or more meaningful aspects of life. Most commonly, nihilism is presented in the form of existential nihilism, which argues that life is without objective meaning, purpose, or intrinsic value. Moral nihilists assert that morality does not inherently exist and that any established moral values are abstractly contrived. Now, what I would notice is these all depend on denying that which exists, depends on denying cause and effect. I don't know any human beings who can do this, and those who I've heard about are in comic books. They have superpowers. They're able to fly around. I haven't seen any regular people doing that without some serious technology, so I can only assert the positive, that which exists, and kind of go from that. What do you think, uh, Tony? Well, people often attribute... Uh, nihilism, I believe, to Nietzsche, which Nietzsche really, if you study his philosophy, uh, I know Brett also has left, uh, has commented on this before, but he really just, much like Hegel, uh, noticed patterns and the way people behaved and, you know, uh, how people really were guided by their irrational, uh, emotional, reactionary sort of sense and weren't using logic and reason as a basis or foundation for how they would guide their lives. And so that it's an interesting kind of perspective because then other people, you know, took that and ran with it and developed other, you know, uh, isms from it, but you know, such as uh, moral nihilism and all these types of other forms of it. But nonetheless, I know many times it's often attributed to Nietzsche, and I think it's important to kind of put it in perspective that, again, there might be a philosopher there that's just noticing a pattern uh, of behavior or, uh, you know, of individuals rather than just... Uh, um, uh, stating a philosophy as what is uh, in terms. So, well, and this also ties into the concept of, of sophism, uh, the, the idea of the argument from uh, a reason other than it being true, a reason, a uh, motivation to use force, fraud, aggression, deception to take away someone else's free will, to plunder, if you will, instead of produce. What do you think about that, Brent? I think that that's, I, I have one more comment on, on Nietzsche. I think that just even in simpler terms, he was somebody who, um, later in life grew so unwell and you couple that with what he was, uh, observing around him in his society. I think eventually he kind of just said, geez, what's the point? You know, uh, I think that it seems from what you read, uh, later in his life and there's certainly questions about his mental health as well. Um, there, there's some, uh, clues that he just kind of gave up. Yeah, his story didn't end well. If you follow no. the story all the way through, it does not end well. So, but, you know, so there's nihilism, there's existentialism. These are a lot of the key beliefs held by the, 
uh, the people who want to dominate us with science and technology, the eugenics people, the, gen uh, the, the people who are committing genocide and justifying wars, uh, you know, all over the planet, not in our own defense, but rather uh, of aggression. So it's not really a Department of Defense that's the largest employer in the world. It's really a, a, a Department of Offense these days. And they're offending me by using everybody's tax dollars in ways that are non-volitional, meaning that we would never agree to do this to our neighbors. So why would we agree to do this on, uh, you know, to people on the other side of the world if it were not for philosophic corruptions of reality like solipsism, like nihilism, ex existentialism, sophism? Solipsism is the denial, again, that objective reality, existence, cause and effect, the law of identity do not exist. And these are empirically provable, and they are thus arbitrary, should be dismissed. The people carrying these philosophies are intellectually bankrupt. And the sooner we learn how to intellectually defend ourselves, the sooner we can all start to do the things we want to do in life instead of spending all our time trying to, to relearn what's really going on, to unschool ourselves and to truly educate ourselves. Um, Tony, what would your idea of bridging this gap between Egel and the ideas that, that he laid down, the philosophies that were carried forward from that uh, under maybe a military aspect and bridge it into the, you know, maybe the 20th century. Well, if we go back to last week, we have to remember that Hegel had this dialectic of uh, uh, what we call problem, reaction, solution. And the idea is that it's parts fitting into a whole or this movement going to, towards this whole. And, but he just defined freedom and his, when he went to Berlin and gave, uh, I believe it was in the story of right, but it was in his uh, history of philosophy and his lectures uh, in Berlin, I believe, where he talked about both free will. He talked about this, the the uh, the condition of the individual towards the state, and he also talked about the pattern of history. And the pattern or trend of history is towards individual freedom. I mean, it starts out. It's really three uh, uh, pattern or three distinct. Notions. The first is that one man rules. That's the king or the god king, whatever it would be at the time. Then it's some men rule, and that's kind of the Greek uh, antiquity uh, idealist method, if you will. The idea that um, there's uh, essentially a polity or a politics, and there's this whole process whereby men are educated to be free to a certain degree, but they're still slaves. So some men are free and to, cer to a certain degree. But then we get... Well, why would you need to be free if existence and cause and effect didn't exist? Why wouldn't you just think yourself free? If you're a subjectivist, a solipsist, uh, a nihilist, an existentialist, why are you thinking yourself and the rest of us into these situations? You know, it's, it's just so simple to engage in these conversations and go down that rabbit hole, or you can recognize it for what it is. It's someone who doesn't recognize existence. And that's not someone who's talking about anything of substance, and therefore it must be dismissed as arbitrary and move on. I would make the next step to define existence. And the most eloquent definition of existence I've ever heard, because it in itself contains the entire universe, everything that we say with words is contained in this definition. It's beautiful. Existence is every substance, action, relationship, and attribute, which is was or ever will be in other words you know this is about language and when you understand it, you liberate yourself and when you don't understand it, you're under control of others so this next part i'm going to say the same thing but i'm going to use other words that you might be more familiar with existence is every noun verb adjective adverb 
and conjunction that is, was, or ever will be. Do you have any comments on that, Brett? Well, yeah, and I think it's interesting, and you see how far there is to go into the realm of uncertainty when people start trying to operate outside of this. It kind of reminds me of the great subjectivist question, how loud do I have to scream in your ear uh, that uh, your sense of hearing is lying to you? You know, and, and this has kind of been the problem with subjectivism all along, that something, things exist outside of substance, things exist outside of action and relationship and prepositions that cannot be understood and that has to be accepted. And that paves the way for uh, most of what we saw as far as these command and control mythologies that became so prevalent in the uh, latter half of the 1800s, throughout the 1900s, and right up to the present day, for sure. So I think that this is a, a really important place to put down some definitions and, and clear this up because, I mean, most people don't even understand this dichotomy. We live in a subjectivist world, and again, it's like we're the fish in, not us, we, but most people are like the fish in the water of subjectivism. They don't even know this other uh, point of view exists. They can't see the irrationality until we show them the rationality and the logic and, and compare and contrast it, and only then can they define their way out of it. The next thing I would define would be the law of causality. Now, the law of causality is the law of identity applied to action, meaning that it, the reason it hurts when someone hits you with a snowball is because the snowball is a snowball. When it hits you, they're, they're interacting. They're not the same thing. They're different things coming together. Two things cannot occupy the same space at the same time. Two things cannot be same in every respect and you know uh, attribute at the same time. This is called the law of identity. It's what causes car crashes and, and all these different wars. If the cause and effect of a bullet didn't have any consistency to it, it would not be, you know, guns would not proliferate. If you could not ask a question and reasonably observe, identify, remove the contradictions and find the answer, then there would be no question mark in our language. So the, the very, you know, argument that existence doesn't exist, cause and effect doesn't exist, they have to use words and logic and all these things that are based, it's called the, the, the fallacy of the stolen concept because it's like saying, I'm going to hang out on the third floor of this house, but I'm not going to build the first two floors. You can't deny that which brings it forward. So what you're talking about with subjectivism or solipsism or any of these isms, they're individual social management systems. Autonomy, autodidactic learning is not an ism. These are things that you do for yourself. Isms are things that are used to control people's minds. And it's, it's, anytime you find yourself in an ism, you should start questioning your way out. Tony, how would you define objectivism? So we can compare and contrast. We've defined these negative ideas which deny reality, which deny cause and effect, which deny things that we all know. You would not brush your teeth if it were not for cause and effect. You could hope that, you know, you could hope it could go away. I don't know why you would imagine plaque or gingivitis in the, in the first place. So, when you examine these things closely, when you test them in reality, when you communicate with other people and bounce it off the wall and not think about these things in a vacuum, it's very easy to get out of these rabbit holes early, but only if you have something to compare and contrast it to, like objectivism, not, not the ism of objectivity, my bad. Uh, what I'm talking about is using your five senses to observe what exists, identify these things, uh, you know, define them, gain your general knowledge, remove the contradictions, and then communicate with people. Well, I would actually start back with uh, <clears throat> the idea of the law of causality because, uh, well, well, first off, when we start with objectivism, we have three tenets. And the, th the tenets of objectivism are that 
existence exists. There, uh, that we all have our individual existences that are separate from other uh, individual existences, and that we are aware of that existence and the perceptions and the things around us. And so the idea is that there is an objective existence. And now to go back to the law of causality, the idea is that we we have to base it on observation. And it really is just like uh, the revolutionary aspect of Aristotelian logic. Objectivism represents that in the 21st century. We are talking century. about consciousness. This is Corbett Report Radio. We'll be right back. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now. No matter Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio on this Friday night. We are talking about consciousness. That's what we just got to right before the break was the definition of consciousness, which is existence exists. You become aware of the fact that existence exists. You recognize that cause and effect exists. The law of identity exists. And you have a process of inquiry, asking substantial questions, finding relevant answers. That is consciousness. The process of going about asking those questions to find those answers is called thinking. Now, you'd think after 15,000 hours of public schooling, most of us would have heard those definitions before. These are very useful concepts that you're going to use for the rest of your life. So let's get back to this idea of objective observation of reality using the five senses, that which exists, all these different things that we experience every day. We take it for granted. We're like fish in water. We And we are in an irrational culture that is the legacy of Jorg Egel, Immanuel Kant, Egg, uh, Pestalozzi, Fichte, all these other characters from Prussia in the 19th century imported to America. So now let's dig into how we are going to contrast nihilism, solipsism, these ideas that nothing exists and you can just make up the truth and there is no objective truth for everyone to follow. So these are the world rulers. This is their elite philosophy. Their philosophic corruption of reality is evident all around us. And well, and I'm sure, like, if we were to talk about solipsism, nihilism, and uh, existentialism, yes, they're quite complex, and yes, there's a lot to them, and they talk about, obviously, different aspects of philosophy. So we tie it back, actually, to objectivism, so we can actually talk about these aspects of philosophy. There's axioms. Axioms are the questions you just can't ask anymore. They're the underlying foundations to anything. And so the three axioms, again, are that is that existence exists, what we just mentioned, that uh, the law of identity and that we are aware of that which exists. And then there are five tenets to any really philosophy, but objectivism did a very good job in the 20th century of defining what those are. And that would be metaphysics, essentially what exists, what is. Um, is it mind, Is uh, or is does matter exist, or is there a relationship between the two? There's epistemology, how do we know what is? And that's our five senses, how reliable is our sense knowledge? Uh, it, obviously, we have... Uh, developed in science and rationality and so forth, uh, leading up to what we have essentially gotten this mechanistic technocracy sort of culture based on this sort of perfected rationality that's a sort of Plato's Republic. And, and it, we also, now on, to continue on, we also have ethics here. So now that we know, uh, we know that what it's is... Like, it's is like, what, what do we do about what exists? Yeah. How do we, we know go what about exists? meeting our needs and, we, and doing the values? Right. And then there's politics and aesthetics. And aesthetics is essentially the idea of how do we communicate that which we know to exist. And that's, we create it through art, through media. It's what we're trying to do right now. Exactly. And so when we get back to these ideas, uh, you know, tying it back to solipsism, tying it back to nihilism, tying it back to existentialism, the idea is that, yes, they're very complex. We could talk about the epistemological 
implications of solipsism or the metaphysical implications. But the idea still is that it's subjective. There, there is really no truth but what's held in the mind, and whether or not they deny the mind entirely, or if they hold those truths in the mind as being more real than the reality around them. That's the idea. And so at the end of the day, they all have this subjective tendency. And we have to, it wasn't until the 20th century, which is again, uh, as much of a revolutionary thought of uh, Aristotle's uh, philosophy must have been during his time. Well, that was kind of what happened during the 20th century. Unfortunately, there are some issues with objectivism, but still yet to actually go from the idea of existence exists and that we can know that it exists and we're aware of it. You know, that's a, pretty powerful starting point. Well, my, my first problem with objectivism would be it's, it's an ism. So anytime you're dealing with the, this indiv- individual social management system, you have to be careful and make sure that you understand what you're doing. And when you dig into it, I find contradictions. So I don't, I don't find it useful to use the 20th century term objectivism when it's all based on classic uh, you know, works done by Aristotle and improved upon over the years by a lot of great writers, especially the fallacies. Being able to identify the words people use to lie to you I mean, that's really what you're worried about, someone else taking away your rights, taking away your volition using these words. Do you have any thoughts on that, Brett? Well, I will say this in defense of objectivism, and I know you're not uh, you know, criticizing it, but I think one of the things that was uh, valuable here, and it came at just the right time you know, in the, in the first half of the 20th century, is for a long time uh, in the history of philosophy, there was this, again, dichotomy between the empiricists, that was the word I blanked on at the beginning of the show, and the rationalists. And, you know, the, the empiricists saying that the senses are the primary source of knowledge and the rationalists saying, you know, this comes more, uh, from reason. You cannot trust the senses. And when the idealist, the German idealist came along, which, which objectivism really responded to very critically, it was Kant, and, and just in Kant's defense a little bit, it's easy for us to look back in time standing on these giant broad shoulders that uh, have come before us to be able to uh, do a critique of somebody like Kant. But in his time, with the resources he had, uh, you know, trying to figure out this stuff, it's understandable how he made a few mistakes. And I don't really know why he separated uh, or bifurcated things into this phenomenal or apparent world, the world we thought we lived in, and what he called the nominal world, the the real world. But I think that he was trying to answer some very important metaphysical questions. And it, it like, again, it was good that objectivism came along to point out and try to correct his mistakes, because I think what he ultimately said is, well, you know, we say morality is real. We say um, freedom is real, but these things don't exist in the phenomenal world. So there must be something else. There must be some kind of place for uh, you know, values and the soul and God, and that's how we got into this subjectivist nominal world, and that's a dangerous place that objectivism tried to take us back from. You're listening to Corbett Report Radio. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. We are searching for truth. 
That's the nature of philosophy. We are comparing and contrasting it to sophism, the opposite of philosophy. The the It's when you act uh, as if truth doesn't exist, when you know very well it does exist. You use it throughout your life. You could not cook your food without cause and effect. You would not need to eat if you did not exist. These things we do every day, the people who deny them are kind of, uh, hypocrites, and uh, this is the way to dismiss the arbitrary, to recognize it, to keep yourself from going down the rabbit holes. I would also like to thank RBN for making these magical services of communication uh, possible tonight. Right before the break, Brett had dis- uh, he had uh, compared and contrasted, and he had used this word nominal. And when he said it, I said, there are two worlds. There's the world before you learn the names for everything, before you learn... The, the definition of existence and how to apply that to your reality. So there is a world before you realize that, and that's one world. And once you start to use the law of identity to your advantage, to remove the contradictions, to find consistency and serenity in your life, then you're on a clear course for learning your way to success. Now, speaking of success, we have a researcher on the line from the Tragedy and Hope online community. His name is Kevin Cole. And recently he was up here in the studio doing a four-hour presentation on the history of the classical trivium kevin welcome to the show and my question to you would be how would you s- define the liberal arts and and quickly in like two minutes uh just dis- uh discuss the evolution of it up to the 20th century oh, i know it's you. like an impossible task <laughs> well <laughs> thanks Rich. glad to be here and uh thanks thanks to corbett for providing the format and i, I really wanted to thank brett for his recent series i've uh, found a lot of interest in that and a lot of cross-referencing to the research that i'm doing um, as far as your question goes, uh, the liberal arts uh, originated with a concept uh, of what was called the Enchiclospedia, which was a circular education or a uh, uh, ordinary education or education in a circle. And this was developed by Isocrates, who was a sophist. Uh, and this is how this is transmitted over time up until we get to uh, about the year 781, when a guy named Alcuin of York, who had been brought into the court of Charlemagne, created the word trivium, and this, ar- this arose out of his circle. So I, I know we are pressed for time, but to give a little bit of a background, this is the, the, the derivative nature of this uh, older system of education, where the Enchiclios Pedia did have seven liberal art or seven arts, or artes liberales, as it was called later on. Uh, this, this idea was, was not a, a, a permanence of seven throughout time. This is something that fluctuated and until it became uh, indoctrinated or brought into Christianity or, or uh, adopted by Christianity, rather. Now, I know uh, if, you, if this is the first time you've tuned in and, and you haven't heard the previous two shows, we've kind of built up to this crescendo. So there's a lot of names and words going, going around. You might have to listen again. We're going to make it available to listen again. RBN does that as well. We're also going to have notes and all the links and references for everything we talk about posted on tragedyandhope.com. All you have to do is search for the word Corbett, and it'll also be posted on the front page for, for the next month or so. So, uh, now that we're getting into it and really having a fruitful discussion, this is the longest segment of the show. This is the 18-minute segment of the show. And so I'm going to turn it back to Brett and ask you about the ideas that you discussed in The American Way, this three-part series that you did in the School Sucks podcast recently. Uh, you covered so much, but really what I found brilliant was how you drew the not drew the conclusions you left them to the audience i drew them in my own mind as i was listening i have a great interest in this type of content of course because it affects so many people and we're on we're all unwitting to it and we can't do anything until we're warned and so it's about educating ourselves and what i what i found to be so interesting was 
when you answer the questions in your head about what made the Nazi regime one of the most evil experiences in human history, it does come back to this philosophic corruption, and you did such a, a poetic job of describing that. I, w I would say we're all, as of yet, still learning that we don't have any end conclusions on this. We're trying to figure this out with our, for ourselves, and we're really trying to do a great job of sharing as much of the the references and the artifacts, the primary sources that we come across through the notes and the show and the podcast and everything that we're doing, because I think it is important for us to share this process of how we come to these ideas and move forward and tune into the signal and discover the noise and figure out how to separate the two, to tune out the noise, to tune into the signal. How would you uh, take that forward? Well, uh, first I want to say I think that there is a lot of conjecture in that show because when you look at, um, you know, I mean, I, I made uh, my show focuses on education or excuse me, schooling systems and how they affect uh, society and culture and the psyche of the individual. So to look at how those ideas emerged in the late 1800s and throughout the first half of the 1900s. Uh, there's uh, several variables that needed to be considered, and it really is hard to tell. I mean, you can gather all the information, but it's very difficult to come to any kind of definitive conclusion, which you pointed out, about what was the most uh, significant factor. So um, it, it, I, I, it was something that I felt like the responsible thing to do was to leave it a little bit open-ended in interpretation, because the truth is I just don't, I don't know. I mean, I see how the door was opened when we go back and we look at this, uh, the history of this philosophy that we're discussing tonight. But what, uh, the driving forces were, what the real, uh, most significant accelerants were in that case, I, it's, it's hard to say. So I think it needs to be left open. I think you need to put everything on the table and let people look at it. And, uh, you know, maybe they can come to a fuller or, uh, you know, a more informed conclusion than I did. Well, I think that word accelerance that you used, because there was the different metaphors you used in the various titles of the three-part series, uh, the gasoline-soaked house, pyromania, and it's describing the process of, uh, you know, saying, look, the cause of the fire that is the metaphor for Nazi Germany was not the match. The match alone does not light that fire. The house had to, you know, things have to be in a dry state. Uh, the fires just don't catch in any environment. So there's a, there's a convection current of causality that has to be in play, and so you're just saying, you're observing, look, they soaked the house with gasoline, this philosophy that dried everybody out, the Prussian schooling that made everyone an automaton of the state, sacrificing their individuality for the good of, of the, the, you know, the fatherland. And so the same thing has been imported to America. That's why we're so interested in this, because we are on a crash course for the same result, which is having a bunch of other countries come in here after our country's economy's fallen and just have a, a fire sale to use uh, an inappropriate <laughs> pun, but I used it anyway. <laughs> I'm going to go right. to uh, to Kevin Cole. Kevin, this idea that is merge emerging here is the contrast between philosophy and this education that's propagated among the elites so that they can find truth and then corrupt it. You know, they know that they know what the truth is. They choose to go with another story. That's sophism. We on the other hand, we have been exposed to a great deal of information that has been occulted or hidden. And the definition of education is the unocculting of information, according to uh, the Johnson's Dictionary from 1848. 
So when you actually get into this, it's a lot of fun. It's not a lot of learning or work. Those are words like 15,000 hours convinced us that our curiosity and finding out answers for <clears throat> which have meaning for our life, that's not meaningful. So we have to recognize the state of mind we're in and then recognize something else exists. And, and Kevin, how would you help us map out the process of getting to the truth? How do you do it when you look into all these fascinating artifacts that you're able to find throughout all these online digital archives throughout the world? Well, I think you make a great point there, and I, I think the easiest thing to do is just to, to start with the etymology of words. I mean, if, if, if somebody had told me early on in schooling that the, the word pedagogy uh, has a root in pedagogos, which was a, a slave that trained the master's children or that trained other slaves, or if they had told me that the word baccalaureus, which is a root word connected to baccalaureate or bachelor, like the bachelor's degree, if somebody had told me that that meant a herdsman or a farmer serving under, or I'm sorry, a, a, a herdsman uh, serving under a farmer, so uh, another subservient position, I think we would have all had different uh, things to think about school going in. Um, so I think the best thing to do is to kind of look at the, the root words and, and try to, dis 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 uh, to discover where this all originated. I, I would, I'd like to ask what you guys think about the concept of, of subjectivism at the state level and how that gets inscribed or enshrined as a part of progress related to Hegel's uh, thesis, antithesis. I'll, I'll yield to Brett or Tony on that. Well, um, I guess we have to look at it from the right Hegelian's perspective, at least I would think so, because they kind of memorialize that idea of moving toward, from this whole idea of moving these parts moving towards this whole, right? And that's we later see that in ecology. We later see that in cybernetics and technology. Well, Gatto had a, absolutely. Uh, there was a, a word that Gatto used in uh, Underground History of American Education in the chapter titled The Cult of Scientific Management, and it had something to do with unity. It wasn't organic unity, but when I heard his nomenclature, I realized it's the same thing that Kevin's been talking about for six months, and I realized that we need to define our terms because there are people talking about the same thing but we're using different words for it and that causes so much entropy and friction and confusion and recreating the wheel and that's why we're all trying to that's why we created a community so we could talk about all this stuff not just on on this show but all the time because this is how we are learning for ourselves how to grow in the light direction brett how would you address uh kevin's question well, I'll pick up where Tony left off. Like, the right Hegelians uh, became the Fabians, am I correct? Later on, I believe they did, yes. I mean, essentially, it started out, I think, with them. I, like you said, history ended with the Prussian state. History ended because they knew how to manipulate history in their image. Yep. And I'm going to jump on this. In the same chapter of The Cult of Scientific Management by John Taylor Gatto, he refers to this thousand points of light quote, which struck me as the, the typical New World Order, George W. Bush, uh, thousand points of light speech in 1991. This is credited to H.G. Wells, who apparently is the source of this in The Open Conspiracy. And Gatto saying, I highly encourage you to read The Open Conspiracy. I highly encourage you to read H.G. Wells' New World Order from 1939. This is the literary history we're being denied in public education and we've been taught how to read, but we've been taught how to read so we can be good slaves, interchangeable parts in these corporations that are international and have no local accountability. And that's what we're all missing. We're missing logic, reason, and local accountability. And the only way to get it back is to take it upon ourselves to educate ourselves and to demonstrate what we're learning to others. It's not because we want to be behind a microphone to do this. It's because this is what we have to do to communicate to people 
is the same reason that you're listening to this show. That's the reason you're tuning into RBN. It's the reason that Corbett Report Radio is not noise to you. It's your signal. So going forward, Kevin, how would you describe some of what you've learned in the history of the classical trivium? I know we're going to go to a break here in uh, maybe five or six minutes. So you've got like four or five minutes, and then I'll close it before I, the, the break and summarize it, and we'll go into the last part. We'll bring it all, tie it all together for people, and they'll be left with a lot of questions and answers and a wonderful journey of exploration ahead of them. Okay, well, if I, if I could, I'd like to add a little bit to uh, some of the presentation that you all did, did last week with regard to Hegel. Uh, um, I, I wonder if you all are familiar with the St. Louis Philosophical Society that was founded in 1866. Um, I found that this is one of the the main uh, stations of uh, of, of disseminating uh, Eagle's logic in, in the United States. There were quite a few philosophers in Ohio that uh, were influential in disseminating his works, but St. Louis in particular, we have an individual by the name of Henry Conrad Bruckmeyer, who is an ex-Prussian soldier who comes over to the United States in 1844 after leaving Prussia, uh, upset with the reforms uh, that were taking place there. And they had uh, uh, a, a connotation described uh, four years later of, in 1848 known as the uh, 48ers because this, there was uh, German reforms uh, after the revolutions of 1848 in the German states that brought a lot of these dignitaries over from Germany and imported so much of this philosophy. Uh, in fact, the St. Louis Philosophical Society that I mentioned uh, founded the first journal on philosophy in the United States. It's called the Journal of Speculative Philosophy. And, uh, and for those of you that have uh, watched the Ultimate History Lesson with John Taylor Gatto, uh, I think this will come as, as much of a bombshell that Johann Fichte's son, Emanuel Hermann Fichte, who lived from 1796 to 1879, was an auxiliary member of the journal of, of, of philo- first journal of philosophy, the speculative philosophy journal of the St. Louis Philosophical Society. And in much of uh, the uh, ideologies on both sides of the, uh, of the Atlantic uh, were, were uh, at a confluence. And so you have William Torrey Harris and Henry Conrad Bruckmeyer, who goes on to be the first lieutenant governor or lieutenant governor of, of the state of Missouri. And these people were all interfacing with a network uh, of uh, of scholars and philosophers uh, that, that are involved in the founding of the Fabian Society. There's the Con- Concord School of Philosophy uh, with uh, Amos Bronson Alcott, and Amos Bronson Alcott is the one who is is writing back and forth to Johann Pestalozzi, and, and more importantly to Cousin. And Cousin is the biggest propagator of the Prussian education system that gets Horace Mann to go over there and 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 check this out. Although he didn't get to even see this in action. He, he, uh, still came back with a glowing report as a result of, of Cousins papers, which were so famous all throughout France and Germany. So, uh, there, there's, it, it's just so fascinating for me to trace the networks of, of how these, uh, how this has evolved over time. But I, I would definitely urge people to look into the St. Louis Philosophical Society, uh, in conjunction with the Prussian education system. Uh, individuals like Carl Schurz, uh, Joseph Pulitzer, uh, Thomas Davidson, who founds the Fellowship of the New Life, that then goes on to found the Fabian Society and the, fun- the London School of Economics and-, and everything that we know from there. So the St. Louis movement plays a, a huge role. Uh, Denton Snyder, uh, Amos Bronson Alcott, and-, and a lot of the transcendentalists uh, would-, would travel to St. Louis in order to participate in this, in this uh, revolution of the mind. And more importantly, uh, if, you- if you look into this close enough, you'll find that the, the thesis antithesis of Hegel is being used 
as a way to prop up St. Louis as a national city. They were hoping eventually that Washington, D.C. would would fall as the capital and they would get it. And they were in competition with Chicago, and they were happy after the fires in Chicago. Uh, but they, they, of course, didn't uh, match them in population, and uh, St. Louis is never but been they the have same. an arch. But they have an arch. But they do so have an arch. I also wanted to offer to the audience the fact that we have a... a interactive brain model it's a it's a mind map if you will that connects all these personages that our education system would say they're not connected there's no conspiracy but when you map all these characters out who got their job from whom how who they're employed for you know by where these foundations get their money what you find is people like H.G. Wells well he's part of the Fabian Society and there's a strong Fabian connection all the way up through our schooling and when Kevin presented the history of the classical trivium what you discover is the history of education, or the history of schooling, rather, is the history of mind control, that sophists have been in control of our education the entire time. Sophists are in control of our government. And the only way we can change that is to contrast it with some objective logic, using reason, using your five senses to discern what exists, to identify that, to remove contradictions, and to communicate with others. Kevin also mentioned the ultimate history lesson with John Taylor Gatto. It's a five-hour DVD set where he sits here for a weekend and spills all of his best wisdom in one sitting. It's available in the notes and references. There's a banner that uh, helps to donate to Corbett Report and to School Sucks Podcast. You have your choice. And uh, we'll be bringing this show to a summary and tying up loose ends in just a few seconds. Hang in there. We'll be right back. back to Corbett Report Radio. We've been discussing for the past two weeks, including this week, and this will be the third week, intellectual self-defense. And we're trying to figure out, you know, what is truth? And that's a hard process. You're not going to figure it out in one sitting. It's a kind of a lifelong, ongoing habit that you have to form to ask these questions, to find the relevant answers, to communicate with other people. And that's what the research community is about. That's everything that Corbett does. That's why I tune into Corbett and have been working with him for years. And this idea of being able to discern fact from fiction, to identify sophism, fallacies, to define when somebody is intellectually bankrupt, to be able to analyze their arguments, these are all things that we need to learn to do, and we're just practicing. So we are learning, we are growing, and... The ideas that have been expressed tonight, it doesn't necessarily get to you the first time. But you can come back and listen. That's the beauty of Internet radio. It's recorded. It's going to be out there. You can listen again. You can check the notes and references. And it might mean a lot more the second time after you have some contextual information on it. Do you have any ideas on that, Tony? I just want to add a comment. You know, just the, the idea of common sense. Uh, we have five senses, and that's in common with all of us, all of our, all humans. So that's kind of goes back to Aristotle's doctrine. You know, it, it, it's not to take this and go into these uh, sort of mind realms where we're just building out these fantasies where we can't really answer some questions. We're just trying to tell people, look, 
observe your reality, remove the contradictions, use the fallacies, and you'll have a little bit more confidence in at least uh, going through a lot of this information that we're presented with. I mean, that's really the problem. We have trouble communicating with friends and family. We have trouble finding ways, uh, 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 eliminating cognitive dissonance within ourselves. So that's uh, it's important to remember that we need a consistent method and, you know, a simple method uh, to keep it commonsensical. To make it useful and so you can practically apply it every day in your life. Brett, I would like to thank you and express my gratitude for you being a good sport and getting up uh, whatever time you have to get, uh, you know, wake up at 11 o'clock at night. Did you take a nap before these things? This is no, midnight. no, that, w- that would have been a good idea, a good suggestion for next time. I thought when I saw you log on Skype, you know, 1130, I was like, oh, maybe he takes a nap before the show. That's a good idea. So I would like to thank you for putting all this energy into the three-part series of the School Sucks podcast, The American Way. Where can people find these juicy podcasts that you produce? Sure. SchoolSucksProject.com is my website. We also have a YouTube channel. Our username is School Sucks podcast and if you just want to go straight to the podcast feed you can find that at schoolsucks.podomatic.com and this three-part series is maybe 10 episodes back i uh highly encourage people to check it out if they have uh you know five free hours now in one minute could you express some words about persistence and getting things done because uh, I know that uh, from my own experience, uh, broadcasting a live video stream is not easy to get all the webcams working, et cetera, et cetera. So what words would you have for the audience on persistence? Well, I think that there's, uh, you know, that incredibly satisfying feeling that waits for you at the end. Uh, it's really easy uh, once a, a project gets started and it's not going the way that you want to dump it and you know maybe try to pursue a different path entirely but uh you know i think it takes a few successes and to remember those successes and uh remember to be grateful for uh you know having the opportunity to do this stuff i think that that's a real motivator like even five years ago when we started to become aware of this stuff a lot of the things that we're trying to do today would have cost thousands of dollars or have been just uh but now you know, but now we can we can do it with so much less effort with the help of the audience and our appreciation right. thank you everyone for tuning in and not dropping out and thank you to mike in the control room filling in for manny you've been listening to corbett report radio good night